We wrapped up last week in chapter 5 of the Song of Solomon, and we were talking about chapter 5, verses 10 through 16, where the bride tries to describe the one she's looking for. And it's a, it, it is interesting, as I hopefully I alluded to last week, and hopefully you saw, um, that she also shows her unbiased, uh, or rather her bias, of great admi- admiration toward him. And also, she's describing him to people who obviously she thinks has never even seen him, or maybe have seen him but didn't recognize who he was. You see where I'm going with this, right? And, and I have to say, there's more than just meets the story of, of husband and wife here. Anyway, so I'm going to read that again, and uh, just to continue on from where we left off. So this is where we are right now. So she's describing the one whom she loves and is looking for. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verses 10 through 16. I'm reading from the Amplified Version, as usual. Um, she said, My beloved is fair and ruddy, the chief among 10,000. Now we know that David was a ruddy man, and so we know obviously Solomon wrote this, and he's probably ruddy too. So you can see, again, he's talking about himself, and he's making it pretty darn clear. <laughs> His head is as precious as the finest gold. His locks are curly and bushy and black as a raven. He writes pretty well about himself, doesn't he? His, eye, <laughs> his eyes are like doves beside the water brooks, bathed in milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices or balsam, like banks of sweet herbs. Now, if you just, I mean, I can keep reading this, and I will, but just think of the description. Is she really trying to be subjective in her description? You know, like if I say, well, I'm missing my pet dog or I'm missing my son whom I love, but I want you to, I really want to find him. But she's talking in very flowery, very convoluted, filtered through the lens of love. Sometimes you can say filtered through the beer goggles. <laughs> you know, the more I drink, the more beautiful you get. <laughs> Oops, did I say that? <laughs> Do I have to edit that out of this now? Anyway, that's why God says not to get drunk, so you can make the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> but I, as they say, digress. You <laughs> make the wrong choice. <laughs> anyway, so she's talking in this flowery, um, uh, filtered through rose-colored glasses. Uh, you can see that it's, she's speaking from her heart. So, again, and it's Solomon writing this. So what is he actually trying to show us here? I mean, I could even see if this was written as a real story in its truth, and she was writing what she actually thought. The, the betrothed, right? But this is not the case. If you look at it in black and white, this story may be partly true of one of his wives. We don't know that, but what we do know is he wrote it. And he's writing of himself, and he, there's a purpose behind it then. There's a purpose behind it. So what is that purpose? Who is he in the line of? And what is this all about? And so that's why I keep saying it's this underlying story that needs to be told. And again, all the commentaries I've looked at say the same thing. You, if you look at this, you can deepen your understanding of God's relationship with Israel and Christ's relationship with the church. And that's, I'm telling you, this is more and more I, I pray about this and study this. Uh, this is what I'm getting at. So I, I'm, I'm just going to keep that line and people can go with it or not go with it where they will. So let's continue. Verse 14. His hands are like rods of gold set with nails of burl or topaz. His body is a figure of bright ivory overlaid with veins of sapphires. His legs are like strong and steady pillars of marble set upon bases of fine gold. 
His appearance is like Lebanon, excellent, stately, and majestic as the cedars. And we talked about the cedars last week and how what they, they really exemplify is stately, astute businessmen business and, and, and world-running economy that really pretty much runs the world as the economy, right? These stately cedars that were the ships, masts of these huge ships that they ran the world's economy on. They were the heads of the economy, right? As, um, as um, descendants of Laban, who was a swindler, but he was the first in Genesis of a person who was really a student in business, even to a fall. But those people migrated toward Lebanon. And this seems to be the, from the history I did when I, I studied, when I did that piece of scripture back in Genesis. Um, this is the, the, those people are the ones who migrated. And again, you know, history has long legs. Memories have long legs. And they carry these talents and those things with them as a people. And they became the epicenter of worldwide commerce then, just as the container shipping companies and others like I've talked about are the, are the epicenter of worldwide commerce now. So this is, what he's, this is what he's saying. And by the way, didn't Solomon, it wasn't Solomon, the epitome of, of, of wisdom and, and all these exemplary of all of this? So he's equating himself also to the cedars of Lebanon. I'm just saying what I think. Um, verse 16, his voice and speech are exceedingly sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. Could, could I ever write this about myself? I probably could try, but it wouldn't get published. <laughs> The whole of him delights and is precious. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. Isn't that interesting? O daughters of Jerusalem. Now, just as a note, and again, you, this book is difficult enough, so you all have to make your own decisions. I mean, there's not a lot of black and white things here. But it's one thing to say she's describing him as my beloved, but she also has to in interject that he's also my friend. Well, if I'm looking for somebody, I might say they're a relative or, or, or a friend. But I'm not going to say that, by the way, I also really like this person. You know, this is, this is a very heartfelt thing here. I, and think I do too, absolutely. So what, what, I, what I did last week, and I'm going to just do now as we get going here, um, I'm going to read 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 20 to 29. And this is just one of many examples in the scripture that attest to describe, describing God and his attributes for anyone who will read them. And, and the reason why I put this here, was, and the Psalms also, I think I have, I have a Psalm here I'm going to read, is because it seemed very important that she needed to describe not only in some detail, but it was abstract detail. She described this man who she's looking for in not black and white, like, you know, you put like a, a wanted poster up, you know. This is, you know, five foot something, hundred and something pounds, was last wearing this, driving this. Okay, that's, I can use that to look for somebody, okay. But when I start talking about his legs are like uh, cedars and his body's like fine ivory, well, I may not be able to find that person as easily with those heuristics, right? Using those heuristics, because that's all they are, heuristics. They're not really anything I can grasp onto. It's but it's poetry, which is of the heart, right? And that's what you're saying. Okay, and that's true. And that's what I'm saying. There's a reason why it's written that way, but it's a searching for somebody. So what I wanted to contrast with is when it's not poetry, when God reveals himself in Scripture... He is not kidding around, and it's not a feely, flowery thing most of the time. So because people who are looking at Scripture have to use it to identify God. We only have the Scriptures to identify our God. We really don't have much else. Think about it. Think about it. 
So let's, in that vein, let's look at a non-poetic from one of the non-poetry books describing God. Okay? And we know that Christ is the God of the Old Testament as well. So, um, 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 20 through 29. And what can David say more unto thee? Now, he's actually speaking to God, but listen to this. Uh, for you, Lord God, know your servant. For, you, for your word's sake and, ascending to your, to, and according to your own heart, have you done all these great things to make your servant know them? Wherefore you, number one, are great, O Lord God, why? For there is none like you, neither is there any God beside you. Okay, I can start now understanding who he's talking about. Very unique here, right? According to all that we have heard with our ears. So now I'm going to be re repeating what he already knows. And with, and, and what, by the way, according to what he's heard with ears, meaning he's sort of like firsthand to this. It's not like hearsay, you know? And what one nation in the earth is like your people, even Israel. This is uh, Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 22. Whom God went to redeem for a people to himself. So we know how God works in a certain type of people to do a certain thing. And by the way, isn't he doing the same thing with us as the church? He's, he's selecting a people for himself and to make him a name and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land before the people which thou redeemest thou redeems to thee from Egypt. Now, Egypt is also a spiritual type. Didn't he redeem me from this Egypt or from this Babylon? So you see, he's making it very clear. From the nations and their gods. Verse 24. For you have confirmed to yourself, your people Israel, to be a people unto thee forever. So we know his character. When he calls somebody, he doesn't let them go. And by the way, didn't Jesus Christ say that? I will not let none that God, the Father assigns me, slip out of my hand, except for the one, which was never really part of the plan, other than, other than to be the son of perdition, right? And you, Lord, have become their God. And now, verse 25, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So we know that this is actually the, the inaugural address, if you will, of David. But he's saying and confirming that he knows that God is not a liar. And he's just confirming that this one, you can count on every word. And what do we say? In, what do we know in Scripture? That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. All we have to do is learn it and know it. To show ourselves as what? Good workmen that needeth not be ashamed that is coming. So we know, we're seeing so these important attributes. Um, let's see. Let's see. Um, verse 27. For you, Lord, O Lord of hosts. Go okay, so he's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of everything, right? Everything that's created. The God of Israel, that's we know that, has revealed to your servant, saying, I will build thee in house. Therefore have, have thy servant found it in his heart to pray, this to pray this prayer unto you. And now, O Lord God, you are that God and your words be true, and you have promised this goodness unto your servant. Therefore, in verse 29, now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, of your servant, that it may continue forever before thee, which he had already said. The line of David goes right through Jesus. We know that even from Genesis, right? That the scepter shall not depart from Judah until it comes to whom it belongs. 
which is Christ. And that's the final, the final ruler, right? For you, O, for you, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessing, let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. By the way, just an interesting note. I know, and I'm sure you know, that I could actually pray this prayer for myself. Not the particulars, because there are certain particular blessings for David. But if I take this in this generic sense, sense, it lets me know and encourages me and you and the reader, even if they're not Israeli, even if they're not Jews, I know that God says what he means. He means what he says. He does what he says. And that I can pray, even though I know he's going to do what he says, I should still pray for it and then expect it. And then I am a man after his own heart, just like David. Just like David. And even though David sinned terribly, and even though it was before physically in time Christ came, from the beginning of the world, the sacrifice was already established. We know David's in heaven. So the point is, is this is applicable to searching for God, but I just wanted to bring all of that as one. And as a matter of fact, let me read. Uh, uh, did I, oh, no, I didn't put the Psalms in here, but there are several Psalms. I didn't put them in here because I didn't have time. Um, that also, but you should look at it. If you look at the Psalms, and, and by the way, Psalms is part of poetic, right? But you can still see these attributes of God. So the, who is the one whom we look for? How do we describe him to somebody? I just did. By the way, going back to today's email, I described what God thinks about how he designed men and women and what he thinks is detestable. And my brother, and I'm sure others, cannot deny it because they know. And it says in that scripture that you know, you know, so the only thing they can get do, do is get angry and say, back off. But they can't say it isn't true. Actually, if you think about it, more prone to saying it isn't true are the ones in our churches in the postmodern era who say the true gospel isn't true. It's what I feel is true. Think about that. What's worse? I'll leave that up for you to decide. But what's worse? Someone who professes knowing God and yet rejecting the basic tenets of that particular, if you want to call it faith, because they don't have faith. At least if someone, and, and God basically says this, right? Look, if someone rejects it because they don't understand it, you know, that's one thing. But first of all, it says in Romans that there's nobody who doesn't understand. But I'm saying, if someone that you know I know rejects something out of hand, they can, they can have convinced themselves that they didn't understand it. Okay, that's one thing. Even though they, they did. They could, like, you, you've spoken to atheists, right? They swear up and down, I don't know, you can't do, blah, blah, blah. Even though the Bible says that just by looking around you, right? You can, you can identify that there is at least a God just by looking around you. But, of course, they can't see that. But what's worse, I think, in my opinion, is when you have people in these churches today who profess loving this book, who profess knowing these things, who profess the true gospel, but when you talk to them, they're vacuous. And by the way, when you bring it up to them, they get angry. Who's going to get the worst punishment? Just like Israel, when they said, oh yes, we know you, God, and we will willingly enter this covenant with you, right? And God said, okay, right? If you do this, I will do that. If you don't do this, I will do that, or I won't do that. And you said, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Then how long did it take them wandering in the wilderness for a generation to die off because they would not believe God? You don't think that the same God of that time is going to look at this church today in general and say the same thing? 
Where are the woes going to be worse? When Jesus says, those they will come to me in that day saying, uh, you sought me and you say you found me. We're talking about seeking and finding someone, right? And then you're going to come to me and say, well, Lord, Lord, we know you because we did these things in your name. So you must have known me. You must at least think you know me, right? We did all these wonderful works. And, and he's going to say, yeah, well, you know, you didn't get it quite right, but uh, some people did and they'll get better rewards than you. No. Depart from me in anger. I never knew you. And we discussed that the word, the words I never knew you was taken from the same Hebrew type of structure that basically says Adam knowing Eve in a most intimate way. This is a problem. It's going to be worse for them, like he says in Scripture. Who's going to be worse for than in the days of Sodom? That's why Israel's getting a double and triple and quadruple punishment. And you notice how God uses other evil nations to punish them, and then, of course, punishes them. But how much more punishment has Israel got, and yet she has never ceased to be a nation all these years? She's got attributes that no other nation, that has, which has fallen, has, has, because God is a God we see. We identify God as a God of promises. So it's a very critical thing, but I just wanted to show you the abstract of, of po poet poetry, which is good. It's useful. But we have to make sense of it either way. We can't let it, because you know what happens? I'll just finish this last thought here. I personally have observed, now I'm a logical person, and that's just me. There are more people, there are people who are not that logical, and especially, well, just people. Okay, that's fine. But at the end of the day, there has to be some hard, hard black and white truth that can be found in the poetic books, right? As well as can be found in the historical books, as well as can be found in the books of, of the, of the, uh, major and minor prophets, right? There has to be some hard proof because if you look at prophecy, it's written in abstract and you can call that poetry sometimes, right? As a matter of fact, I know that some of the, like I bet you if I looked up in here and I don't have the time right now, I might do it as an exercise. Before, remember I told you about the late 1800s and the early 1900s around World War I when God was now preparing the land for a people and how it started realizing the church started, certain smaller factions of the church started, like the Plymouth Brothers and so forth, and the Balfour Declaration, and General Allenby winning back Jerusalem for the British crown without firing a shot and praying about it. All of these things started to happen, and the church, a small portion of it, started realizing, wait a minute, the prophecies of Israel coming back in the end as a nation is starting to come true. How many people saw it? Not many, okay? But if you look at those things, and you look at prophecy, before those things started happening, remember, prophecy, right, you have the, the, the uh, revelation, right? Then you have you know, the interpretation, and then you have the illumination, right? So these men, before they were, they knew the prophecies, but they, like Daniel, he didn't even know what he was being told. But before this, the dominoes start falling into place, which makes it obvious, things that Daniel could not have, no, no matter of fact, Daniel was told. You're not going to know this. No one's going to know this until the time of the end. Well, the time of the end technically started when God really started ramping up Israel to become a nation again. I mean, Jesus Christ started the time of the end. We know that from the prophecy. But if you look at the prophecy, it's a convoluted poetry. It's actually pretty nice. And the reason why I'm saying all that is because books like this that were written before that time, the World War I and that block of time right there, the end of the 19th century and so forth, they talk about Daniel as a very poetic book, a very well-written, um, uh, what do they call it? They, call it? they don't call it poetry so much, they call it, um, uh, oh, what 
am I thinking? What am I thinking? Like a novel? Uh, you know, not a novel. What am I thinking? I'm thinking of a word that's, it's it's grammatically beautiful, and it's not quite poetry, but it's it's sort of it uses very descriptive words to describe something that symbolic. Yeah, that's maybe what I'm looking for. But compared to what we just read, when the bride is describing the man she's looking for in the book of poetry, compared to what we just read here, and what you could read in the book of Psalms, what she wrote was. What, what he wrote that she said, he said, she said, was very flowery. It gave you an image of, of what she thought because she used this, these prose and, uh, of things that were strong and, and masculine or, or beautiful and, and just in their native splendor. So she's describing with the bias in poetry. That's right. Yeah. Right. Exactly just to amplify what his feelings are about wisdom, and he even calls her a woman. And he says that, and she was with me, or she, actually women talks, actually wisdom talks in the first person in some places, right? You're right. And she says, and I was with God when he created the earth, the earth and, this, and, and however she puts it. So yes, but that gives you, it's a fact, but I'm saying there's a nugget of solid fact in there. But what, through that poetry, it makes you understand what wisdom is and how dear it is to God. And she is a companion. It's not just knowledge. I can read a book and get knowledge, and I can bring the book with me, but is my book my companion? It's like when Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you how. I didn't know your name. He knows everybody's name. So what does he mean? He means intimately, as in the relationship of a husband and wife, right, in that context. And that's why marriage was created, so that we could sample the context in our imperfect human nature of what they have in reality as a trinity, right? You see what I'm saying? And, and that's really the, maybe I spoke too much about it, but that struck me as the most important takeaway from this book, is to understand using language to amplify the real importance of something, the real feeling of the writer. Sometimes you have to express it in poetry just to get their real feeling, so they can transfer to you what they really believe, what they really feel in their heart, right? But on the, other on the other hand, you can't write everything in poetry, like you know, you're a technical person, right? You cannot write technical information in poetic form. But it's dispassionate. Technology is technology. I need to know facts. Just the facts, ma'am. But here you have both. God requires both sides of the brain to understand him. And especially to understand his heart, mind, his character as it pertains to the most important things to him, which is relationship to the Trinity and to us and Israel. And also the antithetical relationship that he has with those who will not be saved. That's how serious this is. And we saw it in the ruling when God talked about, because this was hitting me so hard and my heart is so heavy, the devastating results of an angry God who will not dilute his cup of wrath. I cannot imagine what that's going to be. Now, I've toyed with the idea like you, but seeing where we are in time and seeing all the earth changes and knowing what's going on now, and his wrath has not even started yet. Can you imagine when it comes undiluted and these people, like I said in that email, which you'll see is there are so many Christians who don't even believe that God has any wrath anymore. They don't talk about it. He's not mad at anybody for anything. And if, it's, if he's mad, well, he's not mad. He'll get over it because he loves you so much. No. That's the difference between poetry. I mean, if you look at, if you look at how God is going to mete out his wrath, right? Look at it. It's done in flowery language sometimes. But that exemplifies the power 
And the, un, the undiluted, like when he talks about a cup foaming, falling over it with the wine of his wrath, how Jesus treading a wine press. When you think of the pressure, I had an experience with a wine press once, and it wasn't easy. Now, how do you say, okay, why would you have a wine press? Well, I didn't. I told you this story. I digressed to lighten the load here a little bit. There was this girl I dated for a short time in New York when I was in my 20s. And so she was lived out in Farmingville, Long Island. I lived in Queens, so it was pretty far away. So I didn't like going out there that much, and I didn't really like her that much anyway, but we were dating, right? She was Spanish. And for some reason, you know, she was American, but I mean, her parents were like from the old, old Europeans. <laughs> so her father had a wine press in the basement. In, in the basement, in New York. It's like, what? Are you kidding me? It's like... Going to New York and seeing somebody with a barn is like here. Okay, here's barn country. He been a well, he was, yeah. So, <laughs> so see, it's a big vat and it had grapes in it, and it had a big pipe that he put. You know, cobbled this thing together, and you put a slip of pipe into the top, and it's got the screw, and you press, and there's all this pressure, and it's just, she's telling me how this thing works. And even then, I'm thinking, it takes a lot of pressure to, to squeeze a grape. Isn't that how God equates? wine and squeezing grapes but what you get out of it if you do it right and you apply that pressure is something you can't get unless you apply the pressure so there's a lot of poetic and feeling in that but anyway so, <laughs> so i take the pipe i'm, I'm here i am i'm a dope i'm a, i don't i don't i don't even know anything so i take the pipe and i put it in there and i'm going to give it a try to see how tight this thing was right because i was pretty strong i guess in those days and so put the pipe in there but i didn't get the pipe all the way through and I'm pulling on this sucker, and she's standing there. And no one said anything to me. I, I don't know if her father was there. I, I think he was there. I wouldn't even remember. I told, you know what I tell you? I, I must have told you this because I knocked the wind out of myself. <laughs> I did. The pipe let loose, and I went boom, and I knocked myself off. And I, I told you that. Well, it's true, it happened. This is like 1978, 79, somewhere around there. Hey, go ahead, knock yourself out. I didn't mean it literally. Not that long after that, but it wasn't because of that. Actually, I don't remember. I must have blacked out. I don't remember even having any of it. I just remember, because, you know, when you get hurt like that, you remember that. You know, I can remember, you remember a couple of things when you got hurt, like these incidences that you didn't have. I almost broke my leg once. I remember how that happened, but. But here I am. So, but now I can use that going forward when God says, Jesus, see, and it's the thing, right? These are blaspheming God. These people are claiming Jesus Christ, who he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you, which tells me that the fools who even said they knew him, who called his name, who said they were saved by a false gospel that they ascribed to his name, are going to be in that wine press that he himself is going to crush them with. This is the God we serve, and I'm not playing with him. I wouldn't suggest anybody play with him. But this is the wrath, and I think he's putting it on my heart now, more than ever. Because game time is almost over. And that's why, if you notice my emails, which I don't send a lot of them now, but when I do, it's about the church, and it's about getting real. And you notice how I say, and I know I'm off on a tangent here, but I got almost a half hour here, so... Yes. Well, your rooster. What does your rooster say? Oh, come on now. Okay. All right. You. Okay. So I. I have. So it's part of my time when I just update you on personal stuff. Okay. But anyway. So you get my drift. All right. 
All right, well, then I, I guess my timer is no good then. Okay. All right. So I'm going to have to skip that. I'm going to have to skip that. <laughs> Let's just finish up here. All right. Anyway, you see my heart is broken, and it, it, it is. So the answer here is this is a great picture of the church and her great commission to call attention to Jesus as Savior, King, and Lord of anyone and all who will come to want to know him. They will have to come to want to know him and then come to him in repentance and salvation, not just to say, hey, Lord, okay, here, you know, here, I'm going to kick the tires of this Jesus thing. Hey, now you're part of the family. No, that's not how it works. That's part of his body and bride. So the question there, where is he gone? We're still looking for him. He is in heaven and working with his church to seek and save that which is lost and to gather the lilies. To gather the lilies. In the remainder of chapter 6, the bridegroom has a dialogue that expresses his love and affection for the bride. And then she responds in chapter 7. I'm just going to read some of that. Chapter 7, verse 1. I began to flee, but they called to me, Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. I replied, What is there for you to see in the poor little Shulamite? And they answered, as upon a dance before two armies or a dance of Mahanaim. I don't know what that means. Then her companions began noticing and commenting on the attractiveness of her person. You see the evolution in a woman who's loved by such a man? Think about it. How beautiful are your feet in sandals. How beautiful are the feet who bring good news. That's what I get out of this. And that's our job. Oh, queenly maiden, your rounded limbs are like jeweled chains, the work of a master hand. Isn't that how we're being formed as the church? And remember, she started out in the beginning of the book as with inner beauty that Solomon saw because outwardly she was dirty, she was worn, her skin was probably leathery because she was out in the sun working. See, she's been taken and cleaned and favored because of her witness of him and her showing keeping herself spotless as she waits for him the woman around her beg her to stay because they aspire to her radiant beauty that beauty that's what we talked about here i just had to skip some of it because of time but you should read it they want her to stay they don't want her to go because she's so attractive they love her there's something about her that is attractive what about us as the church what about us as the church you're either going to be rejected out of hand, like I am and you are in some instances, or people are going to look to us when those who really are called to salvation will say, I want what you have because you were adopted and cleaned and you're beautiful, you're radiant. Who's your husband? Can we know this person, this man, whatever? Here's a sample of scriptures which make the very point. Second Corinthians 11.2 For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That's the first one. The second one is actually Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. And why take you thought for raiment or clothes? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Second Peter verse three, ch uh, chapter 3, verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, these things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. That's the analogy we see in the Shulamite woman. 
And she's doing it in innocence. She's not like the whore of Babylon on top of that beast where she's, oh, yeah, I'm at peace. As a matter of fact, I have all the lovers I need. I have all the money I need. And what does she say in Scripture? I will never be a widow. Doesn't she say that in Scripture? That's a false peace that she's got. And eventually the smoke rising from her torment even scares her lovers off. Right? But this is the opposite of that. Being found in peace, being ascribed beauty, being pampered and loved by the one who loves us because we are his and he can and will take care of us and we have to love him in truth and, and being chaste virgins. This is the whole point. Yeah. Okay, so let me just finish up chapter 8. We'll be done. How's that? Okay. All right. Chapter 8, the love story or the song or the play, whatever you want to call it, concludes. Here it is, chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, and then we're going to skip to chapter uh, verse 11 and 14, to 14. Chapter 8, verse 5. <clears throat> who is this who comes up from the wilderness, wilderness leaning upon her beloved? And as they sighted the home of her childhood, the bride said, under the apple tree, I awakened you. Let's just think of the metaphors here. There your mother gave birth to you. There she was in travail and bore you. Set me like a seal upon your heart, like a seal upon your arm. Now a seal is something that not only shows something that is, is still unaltered if the seal is not broken, but it's also, if you notice, a, a point of ownership. It's saying if there's a seal, I have sealed you for my own use. And we see that in reference to the Holy Spirit. We see about the, you know, those are sealed by the mark of the beast, yet those are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So we see that we know what this is about. So she's saying, set me like a seal upon your heart that I own your heart, like a seal upon your arm that I own you, and your arm is, is what you, your actual, right? The, you know, right arm and so forth. <clears throat> For love is as strong as death. Now that's poetic, but it's true. Because death never fails, does it? No one ever comes back from that, <laughs> except Jesus, but that's a different point. Jealousy is as hard and cruel as Sheol, the place of the dead. Isn't that interesting? Its flashes are flashes of fire, a most vehement flame, the very flame of the Lord. Now, what did we just read before? I am a jealous God, right? Now he's describing in Scripture what jealousy is. Its flashes are flashes of fire, a most vehement fire, the very flame of the Lord. So we're not supposed, I, I'd say I get out of that. Don't make God, if you sealed his heart and he, you sealed, you know, you, you, you're saying, I'm hanging on to you, you're mine and I'm yours. My beloved is mine and I am my beloved's. Then don't play games with jealousy. Don't serve other gods, right? Look what he's done with Israel. Look what he's going to continue to do to Israel because they did this very thing. And he says, I am a jealous God. So we see this right here. Verse 7 of chapter 8, Song of Solomon. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. Nothing what, what, what can hide us from the depths of God's love? Nothing, right? The highest heights, the lowest depths, right? We know that from the Psalms. <clears throat> so here it is again. Neither can floods drown it. If a man would offer all the goods of his house for love, he would be utterly scorned and despised. Why? Because love cannot be earned. Love has to be given. I mean, well, love can be maintained, but love is an act of the will is what it's saying here. If I want someone to love me that really doesn't love me, I can sell all my goods. I can do anything I want. And one thing I cannot do is usurp somebody's free will to love me. Guess what? No one can do that to God either. But what does God give us freely? The opportunity to love, to be loved. But what does he say as a qualifier? If you love me, you will 
obey me. And one of the major things out of, out of the, the hard things is don't make him jealous. Espoused as a virgin to one wife, not having known man before, right? Not having known one before that. Anyway, let's close up here. Verse 11. <clears throat> Solomon had a vineyard at Baal, Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard to the keepers. Everyone was to bring him a thousand pieces of silver for his fruit. Think of the harvest. Think of, I'm just brainstorming here. You, O Solomon, can have your thousands, your thousand pieces of silver, and those who tend the fruit of a two hundred, but my vineyard, which is mine, with all its radiant joy, is before me. O oh, you who dwell in the gardens, your companions have been listening to your voice. Now cause me to hear it. Joyfully the radiant bride turned to him, the one altogether lovely, the chief among ten thousands to her soul, and with unconcealed eagerness to begin her life of sweet companionship with him, she answered. You get the picture here? It's like the stage has been set. Make haste, my beloved, and come quickly like a gazelle or a young heart, and take me to our waiting home upon the mountains of spices. And Jesus said, if I go, I will prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again to receive you unto me. And what does he say about us? Or what do we know? Come soon, Lord Jesus. Take us to your home. And a mountain in Scripture is 99.9999% of the times I've seen it, a dominion, a domain. A mountain is something that's a domain that's owned or, or, and, and, and managed and, and a form of government, a governmental structure like Nebuchadnezzar's, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. <clears throat> when the rock that hits the statue on the feet, what does it turn into? A mountain that consumes the whole world. And we know that's the millennium, right? And the, the stone, which is a sign of judgment, is cut without human hands because Jesus is not from human father. You see how all that fits together? So I'm just going to finish this up with Revelation 19, a uh, couple of chapters out of that. So how does this sound and compare to you and I and the desire we have for our soon coming king as the betrothed of the church, the very body as well as bride to be of Jesus Christ? Revelation 19, verses uh, 7 through 9. <clears throat> Let us be glad and rejoice. By the way, Revelation 19 is the chapter where Jesus Christ comes back. That chronicles his second coming. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, which I believe is the fine garment, the fine covering that Adam and Eve lost when they knew they were naked. We're getting that back. You see? We're getting that back. Clean and white for the fine linen is of the righteousness of the saints. What did they lose as soon as they sinned? This righteousness, but I think it's more than that. It's a covering of some sort. It's a covering that, that is sort of a bond, even a closer bond to God that they lost, right? They were a layer of abstraction removed from him when they sinned. Verse 19, chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 9. And he says unto me, write, put this down, write it verbatim. Blessed are they that which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, these are the true sayings of God. And I'm going to paraphrase into that. Whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not. Amen. Now, let's, go to, let's finish up with verse, uh, chapter 22 of Revelation, the very end of the book, verses 16 and 17. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel or messenger to testify unto you these things in the churches. Now, you notice the church isn't even mentioned after chapter 3 in the book of Revelation. 
because it's about the rapture and then everything else that goes on and plus some, some parenthetical points of history in the book. If you've studied Revelation or you've, you've been in my study, you know what I'm talking about, right? It chronicles the tribulation, but it also talks about, in par parenthetical terms, some history lessons, okay? But nonetheless, after chapter 3, after the letters to the seven churches, what happens in chapter 4? John is taken up. Come up here. The church is raptured. The church isn't talked about again, really, until it's mentioned here, and it says... Why? Because the book of Revelation is the book written to the church. Remember, there were three types of people, right? Remember I said that? Three people groups. The book, the Jews, the church, and the Gentiles. That's all there is. You fall into one of those buckets, and hopefully you make it into the Christian bucket before you die, right? So the book of the basic history and timeline for the Jew is what? You remember that? Anyone? The book that goes through the basic timeline in general, of the whole Jew Israeli experience, in general, prof prophetically, not Daniel, Ezekiel, correct. The book for the Gentiles is Daniel. It talks about the world powers, right? The, from the beginning to the end, pretty much from Egypt till the end. So the only one left is the Christian. What's the Christian's or the church's book of basic history lesson? The book of Revelation. And that's why the church is mentioned in the beginning of it. Then it goes into the tribulation period. We're, we're sure we're not going to be here. And then there's some, some history lessons in there. And then it goes back. And at the very end of the book, Christ comes back. And he says about the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we're being talked about again, right, as his bride. We see how we're dressed. And then after the marriage supper of the Lamb, and all this, he's saying it's done. And the end of the book, I, Jesus, sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. Who in the churches speaks these things today? Who will allow it? I got kicked out for speaking these things. I was told that nobody will teach revelation. Nobody will teach prophecy. Well, I wasn't told that to verbatim, but when someone asked in that church that day, well, who's going to teach us prophecy? What did one of the pastors say? We'll think about it, but don't expect it anytime soon. Does anybody remember them saying that? I do, and it was Pastor Stan who said it. And during that, I, that session that I got thrown out, Nathan said, when we talked about, they brought a prophecy, I stood there and said basically nothing the whole time, if you were there and you remember it. And he started saying, well, I don't agree that prophecy shows the mind, heart, and character of God. Of course you don't, because you love Rick Warren. And on page 216 or so of his book, he says, when Jesus said he's a liar, he said, well, the disciples asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And I don't you worry about it. Just do the work. You want to talk postmodern? I haven't said anything about that church in a long time. But has it changed? No. And there's nobody I understand even really teaching there anymore other than those pastors teaching the pablum. Who's teaching like I did or Bob Spear did there anymore? They wouldn't be allowed. Curtis Lake is even worse. This is a Curtis Lake wannabe. But this is it. You're supposed to teach these things in the churches. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. How many people think that Lucifer is the bright and morning star? Even in our churches. We've got so many people into the occult now that are waiting for the Luciferian age to come. They're even doing yoga and calling it Christian. And no one's stopping them. Who's warning them? And the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that hears say, come and let him that is a thirst come. Where do we hear that in our churches anymore? Come for coffee. Come for knitting sisters. Come learn archery. Come to the gym. 
Hear about Christ. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. This concludes our Song of Solomon study.